We like things to be tied up with a bow on top. And for many of us who are in the midst of this, we continue to be isolated because others around us aren't comfortable with the storm. They're comfortable with the aftermath of the storm when the sun comes out and it's beautiful. But most of us are in the storm. It's not over. And yet it's so much more comfortable to talk about it as in the past tense. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with author, writer, and speaker, Megan Decker. Megan, thank you for coming in today. I'm delighted to be here, Steve. Megan, as I said, writer, speaker, also a gay Latter-day Saint, co-author of Reaching for Hope, an LDS perspective on recovering from depression, which has provided insight for thousands of readers who experience that. Her new book, Tender Leaves of Hope, Finding Belonging as LGBTQ Latter-day Saint Women shares her own experience and amplifies the voices of scores of LGBTQ women who are also seeking to hear God in their lives. She's published in various online venues. You have a blog online. She and her husband, David, have five daughters, 15 grandchildren. Congratulations. Thank you. And enjoy gathering to explore, eat, and trade book recommendations. I'm so glad you came in today. Thank you. I'm hoping to use your book, Tender Leaves of Hope, as a jumping off point. I really felt like I took a journey with you through your relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And maybe just to set the tone for listeners, what kind of religious environment did you grow up in? I grew up as a Catholic. My mother had been, was a member of the church, but had been inactive since she was about 18. And when she met my dad, they were married in a cathedral. Actually, they were married... A few times they were married in a cathedral. They were married by her later in the day by her uh, her uncle, who was a Supreme Court just Utah Supreme Court justice. But one of the things she agreed to was to raise any potential children in the Catholic faith, and we did. We grew up. She taught catechism. I had a beautiful faith foundation laid by that experience as a Catholic. When I was about 11, my mom woke up one morning and heard a voice telling her to get up and go back to church. And she told my dad she was going to go to church that day. And he said, what mass do you want to attend? And she said, no, I think I'm going to my church. She went. My dad went the next week. They invited me to come after that. The missionaries started teaching us. And my dad told them that they were welcome to come, but he would never allow anyone in his family to leave our faith. And we eventually all were baptized as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that really built on the faith foundation that I already had. As a matter of fact, I think the first time I went to the temple, it felt like coming home because of the ritual. It felt so comfortable to me to have kind of a form of liturgy. Mm. Um, so that, that was my childhood foundation. Did you feel like there was a personal God during that time, someone aware of you, or was it just something out there that you heard about? No, I always, I always felt very close to a personal God. And I remember as a child just talking, talking to God. You know, I kind of envisioned him sitting on the, the spare bed in my room, <laughs> and we would just, we, I would just talk. 
And so it was interesting when we were being taught, and I was praying about what I should do because I, I felt I had had an experience praying by myself. And I was, I was actually 10 at this time. So I was praying by myself in our chapel, in our parish, during a social activity. And I felt that I needed to go seek God elsewhere, and I didn't know what that meant because this was God's house. Where else would he be? In my room, in my bedroom, on my white 1970s shag carpet, kneeling down, I had an extremely powerful experience with God and felt to expand my understanding of him through being baptized. So I, he, was, he was always very personal to me. So here comes an interesting dilemma. I invited you because your book, while you are addressing things from the viewpoint of a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a lot of this will apply to conservative religious congregations or groups anywhere. Yes. Because in spite of this personal relationship with God, there were elements, it seems, that you started to feel cut off from God. And I wonder if you could talk about that because of your orientation, whether or not you were completely aware of that. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So as I say, I was baptized when I was 11. Not many years after that, I started to become aware that I was attracted to girls. And I had felt called into a covenant relationship with God, and I felt that that mattered a lot, that that was where he wanted me to be. And yet I was experiencing feelings that at that time I thought the only avenue, that it was an either-or, that that they were mutually exclusive. Membership in my church was exclusive of being being gay. And because it was so—a choice I couldn't even—I don't think I was even equipped at that point to make or to comprehend. I just knew I needed to stay with the promises that I had made and the understanding I had of what those looked like as they were interpreted to me by my, you know, Sunday school teachers or my youth group leaders. And so I pretty well buried that. Um, just thinking, I'll deal, I, I will deal with this later or this just can't be part of my life. It just can't be. Can't be. They, it can't exist because there, there was no place for those two things to exist in unity with each other. So I shut it down completely. And I know I've talked to, you know, for the book, I interviewed over 40 women, and all of them dealt with their growing awareness of their attraction to girls, to women in different ways. There are a lot of us who shut it down because it simply couldn't exist. Mm. There's a quote from the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles from the church who says, I want anyone who is a member of the church who is gay or lesbian to know I believe you have a place in the kingdom and recognize sometimes it may be difficult for you to see where you fit in, but you do. And then this interesting line, we need to listen to and understand what our LGBT brothers and sisters are feeling and experiencing. Certainly, we must do better than we have done in the past. Mm-hmm. That's a change from when you grew up. Oh, absolutely. Even using those words. Yes, absolutely. And I I think it also invites us to the question of the hour, which is what does that look like? Hmm. (laughs) But, But coming to that point, and I think there was a gradual shift in language. The language when I was 17, 18 years old, listening to General Conference was very harsh from any anything from our 
from leaders was very harsh and even maybe more harsh on a local level as that got filtered down. And I think that was part of what made the choice so black and white to me, so so either or. And then as those comments began to soften, and the first time I really remember that was with president of, of the church, President Hinckley, who talked about having compassion hmm. for our members who experience same-sex attraction. I was teaching seminary at that time for high school students in the early morning, six o'clock before school every day. And I had a girl who started attending whose parents were a lesbian couple. And she was asking me questions because her parents obviously were terrified at her becoming involved with a church that didn't recognize the right of their family to exist. And as I began doing more research to be able to answer her questions, I began to find a softening, an opening of doors that were not open when I was 17, an acknowledgement of a difference between feeling and action, between inclination and behavior that had not been there. And I think that allowed my subconscious mind to begin to see that it could bring things up to me that I had not been willing to see for decades. You talk in a chapter called Grow As We Go which I think is exactly what you're saying right now, that we make progress individually, but maybe also as an organization. One of the things that you wrote, they were collected truths for your life, Mm -hmm. which I really enjoyed. One of them said, I discover there are gifts of the spirit that accompany my multidimensional attraction to women. And I don't think it had ever been taught in the years when you would have been growing up that something like this could have a spiritual aspect and maybe be a gift. I'm not sure. Are we teaching that now? I'm <laughs> I, I don't even know, but it seems, you put that, that you it, are discovering a connection it, to your gifts. Yeah, it is a truth that I feel that thought first occurred to me when I was meeting with a therapist and talking through this. And he said, well, you know, do you think this is all bad? And my attraction to women, is it all bad? And I thought, of course it is. Of course it is. How could it be anything but all bad? It threatens my spiritual well-being. It threatens my family. It threatens every, you know, it, it felt so dangerous to me. But when he asked that question, it invited me to think about ways in which that has actually been a blessing in my life. And I began to see many ways in which what I had seen as, as this dark side, that was my light side under stress. But if I took away the stress, if I took away the guilt and the shame and the fear, I began to see how it had also manifested in my life in really beautiful ways. For nine years, I taught an institute class for a stake institute class for young moms and their children. And and we conceived of that because we saw so many women in in their late 20s, 30s struggling with a feeling of where do they fit? What are gender roles? They were concerned about LGBTQ issues, and they had nowhere to talk about it. Mm. And they would just suddenly one day announce they were no longer going to be at church. And so we wanted to create a space where they could talk, could ask questions, a safe space where nobody would rush in to fix them before the end of the hour, which sometimes happens in in our Sunday meetings. But my heart was so drawn out to these women, and I wanted to serve them. And I, I'm not saying that you, 
you know, you have to be gay to be able to really love women <laughs> because I think there are Relief Society leaders and, and women's women who love women in many ways. But but for me, this manifested in a desire to serve them. I worked in 12-step programs, starting out with the church and then expanding into community programs. And some of those were women-only groups. And so I think I've just always felt really drawn to to channel this love for women into ways that helped them to recognize their own nobility and their potential to become divine. I think it also blessed me in just pushing me to discover where my faith is. Who is my foundation? What is my foundation? Mm. The struggle with shame and with feeling broken kept driving me to my knees in ways that built faith in a way that I'm really grateful for. Not to say it wouldn't have happened any other way, but for me, it has been a gift. Seems like God can use almost anything to get us mm-hmm. to learn what we need to, but they are different ways yes. for all of us. Yes. You mentioned shame, which is a very debilitating emotion or state of mind. Uh, in your introduction, you talk to women who also experience attraction to women and may feel isolated, ashamed, and hopeless which we hope would not be things that happen in a church or that could be brought up, as you said, but often people are uncomfortable or, or as you said very accurately, someone wants to speak up and just correct that and fix that before we all go on to the next comment Mm -hmm. instead of sitting with it or asking what that means. In your own journey, at some point, you start acknowledging or maybe being forced to acknowledge, this is a real thing for me. What do I do with it? Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk about learning where you would go with that, what you would do, and what that did with your feeling of isolation or shame or hopelessness. Mm-hmm. I think I felt in the beginning as I began to acknowledge this, I recognized the source of my feeling of brokenness throughout my life. It became something I could put my finger on. But that I, I want to emphasize that feeling of brokenness came from shame, not from being gay. Mm. It was the shame and, and everything else that I attached to it. And so as I began to be able to recognize this and really to think because I'm, I'm married and I thought, what does that mean for my marriage? Does that mean that I'm living a lie and deceiving myself and my husband? Or is there real value in our marriage? Is there a real connection there? Is that legitimate or, or is it just another manifestation of my denial? And I think we had to figure that out. I remember at the very beginning, right after I had acknowledged this to myself, come out to myself, I had that moment in the mirror of just looking and saying, I think it's time to acknowledge that you're attracted to women. In the second person. I wasn't ready for first person yet. <laughs> and then admitting, feeling compelled by God to talk to my husband about it. He was the last person I wanted to talk to. Which you actually write quite movingly about. This felt like an ultimate sacrifice in a way. It felt like it. Yeah. I was begging. I was on my hands and knees in our family room begging that he wouldn't require it of me. And uh, and he did. He did. For my good, for our marriage's good. Because I had been, not only had I been deceiving myself in my denial, I had put up walls everywhere around me to hide. Mm-hmm. And so as those walls began to be able to come down, 
we were able to have a much deeper level of authenticity in our marriage. As I was honest with myself, I was able to be more honest with others. But initially, it was really hard. It was hard for both of us. And and I remember early on just thinking, who am I going to be then? If I'm finally coming out to myself, recognizing how I really am in this part of my life, what does that mean for all the rest of the parts of my life, for the covenant part of my life, for the married part of my life, for the mother part of my life? What impact does that have? I remember even walking past a Starbucks and thinking, so am I going to start drinking coffee? And I know from my childhood, I hate coffee, <laughs> but, but, uh, but I just didn't know where it would take me. And I think God was really inviting me to trust him and just do the next right thing mm. and not have to see everything laid out. It was several years of just the next right thing. So as I read about later in the book and an improved relationship and all of this, it sounds like, oh, well, this is all working out. <laughs> but, but you didn't know the ending of the story when you lived it. None of us do at any of these moments where we take a leap of faith. It sounded like you felt like God was at least with you or at least prompting you along the way. Yes. Did you feel not alone? I I felt not alone, but I started swearing and saying words that I had never. I mean, I I just didn't grow up swearing. I'm not a I'm not somebody who uses you know uses uh, uses that language. And I started saying things to him that like I would have. I I don't know what I would have said if my kids had ever said those words in our house. But I was throwing it all at him, and you know. He just took it. So I didn't feel alone, but I didn't feel at peace. I was angry. Mm. I was angry that I had served him, and yet he was still leaving me in this place of despair and fear and potentially hurting the people that I loved most. So we were, we were together, but it was – I talk about tantruming like a two-year-old and him just wrapping his arms around me like a good parent – and just saying, it's going to be okay. You can be mad. <laughs> you can kick me. You can hit me. I'm going to take it, which is probably better than I ever did. And it will be okay. So I think that's what I got from him, but not any vision of what that was going to look like. I have heard people say, who have come out to themselves, that they sort of had to go through what they called a gay adolescence. Mm-hmm. Meaning, part of me was always in a box. And once it got to step out... It wasn't as mature as the rest of me. Mm -hmm. I had to sort of go. This talking about a tantrum and certainly sounds like maybe part of a process like that. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Yeah, either a two-year-old or a 13-year-old kind of on the same plane. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And also finding as part of that, as part of, you know, opening this door, realizing that every woman in the produce section was suddenly so attractive to me. So I was dealing with that at the mm. same time and wondering, is this is this how I'll feel? Like, I can't even walk through the store without, <laughs> you know, wishing wishing I could, I could meet up with this person or that person. And so, yeah, that gay adolescence just does, because there's been so much that's been suppressed, that really it's a process. And I think people are very surprised by that and scared by it. Mm. Um, so I'm glad we're mentioning it because it is something to, to be aware of. And I talked to one woman who told me that she came out to herself on a, a Sunday. And the next day at work, her coworker was the most attractive woman she'd ever seen in her life. And she said she felt like a teenage boy for about four to five months. 
And then this release, this dam that had been holding all of these things back that broke. The big flood happened, and then, and then it came to kind of a manageable level. But I'm glad you brought that up. I think, too, we are comfortable in the church, in most churches, with, with stories of challenges overcome. As long as we know it ended well. Yes, yes. We want to know the end of the story. It's like one of my daughters will read the end of the book to make sure she likes it before she reads, you know, before she starts at the beginning and then reads straight through. And we we like that. We're really comfortable. We like things to be tied up with a bow on top. And for many of us who are in the midst of this, we continue to be isolated because – Others around us aren't comfortable with the storm. They're comfortable with the aftermath of the storm when the sun comes out and it's beautiful. But most of us are in the storm. And even as, as you were mentioning a, a few moments ago about this happening back then, well, it's not over. It's still like I didn't get over being attracted to women. You know, that's still an ongoing challenge. And yet it's so much more comfortable to talk about it, especially to people who are who are not familiar with this, to talk about it as in the past tense. Mm. Chapter 14, to be seen and heard. You start with a very common line. Why do you have to talk about this? Yeah. Like this is your personal stuff. Why do you need to share this? Mm -hmm. Because you could pass. You have been passing for decades. Yeah. And this would be true of anyone in a mixed orientation marriage or bisexual people, anyone who could sort of pass, get Mm -hmm. away with not telling. And why is it important for people to share all of who they are. I would say the the short answer is it is healing. I felt broken for so long and it's taken me time to recognize I'm I'm not broken, I'm wounded. And one of the ways to healing those wounds is through light and truth and being able to be seen. So I would say that primarily being able to talk about this, being able to stop hiding, to come out of hiding is healing and that that's for me that is the main reason but i think also god would not let me keep this just between myself and a few good friends i don't know why but he asked me to be more public about it it's interesting the number of women i've talked to in the last 6 months who are having exactly the same experience they could pass and god is calling them out of out of hiding So to be clear, and you state this, you're not saying this is the path everyone should take, but you're saying, I definitely have been led on this path yourself. Absolutely, yeah. But I think it is for most people who do begin to talk more openly, begin to acknowledge it to close friends, or every, every time that happens, it is a healing effort. For years, as I taught gospel doctrine, or I was a Relief Society president, or I was teaching institute or, or whatever I was doing. And people would come up and talk to me afterwards and say, oh, I, you know, such a good, whatever. They say all sorts of nice things. And the narrative in my mind was, you don't know me. If you really knew me, you wouldn't say that. And so you so, couldn't even accept oh, no, compliments no, no. for what you had actually done. No, no, because they didn't know the truth about me. Mm. And when I started to open up to a few people and realized that as I was teaching gospel doctrine, they were sitting in my class and they knew me and they still, I was still okay Hmm. for them. And then I began to believe that what I was doing could be acceptable to God. Because before I had just felt that nothing I could do could make up for my essential brokenness. And I didn't belong. I didn't belong with these good people. 
Hmm. I did my best to earn my place and to make up for who I was. Even And what's so fascinating about this is even as I was in denial, the shame still oozed out of every crevice. So even when I didn't know why I was ashamed, I felt it and it was reality to me. So when someone does feel motivated or the necessity to talk to someone Mm -hmm. and they come out to them, which is a very brave step, because even if they think they'll be received well, until they have that experience, they don't know. Exactly. Yeah. So what do you recommend to people who someone has now trusted them to share this information? Mm -hmm. How to respond? How to respond? When I first started talking beyond just the immediate, my husband and one good friend, I did it because I had heard Brene Brown talking about shame, and I'd read some of her books talking about shame. And she had said that shame grows best in secrecy, silence, and isolation, and the antidote to shame is to speak our truth and be met with empathy and compassion. And so I think meeting that truth with empathy and compassion is the most important thing we do. We don't need to talk to anyone about teachings or doctrine or really they already know. anything. They already know. Oh, yeah, yeah. I knew every word. <laughs> Memorize. <laughs> what they need is just empathy and compassion. And one friend I talked to, I had identified. So I heard this. I decided I was going to talk to two people. I prayed about who it should be. I talked to those two people. I felt like, okay, I've done that. Now it's done. I did feel good. You know, maybe I'll have less shame now. And then I was at lunch with another friend and and felt prompted, compelled to speak to her. And she said to me, I think I love you now more than ever. That's perfect. That's perfect. (laughs) That is so perfect. That is so perfect. But I would add to that, in addition to the response in the moment of acceptance and reassurance and everything, I would also add that there will be a vulnerability hangover that will come to that person who has who has opened up. They will feel they made a mistake. They should never have done that. The other person's feelings about them are going to change. I mean, all of this regret. And it's really important to circle back really soon and reassure them that you're so grateful for what they've shared and that you love them and that nothing's going to change that. And I think that's an important part that sometimes people miss or they don't come back to the topic again, which makes me feel if they're avoiding it, it makes me feel that it's shameful Mm. and that they don't want to engage. So coming back around, reassuring people that you still love them and doing that as a follow-up and maybe more than once is important. So there are instructions online about mm-hmm. how to respond, for instance, if your child comes to you. Yes, yes. There are no instructions for what to do if your parent mm-hmm. comes out to you. Yeah. Could you talk about that? Or your grandparent. Ah. I know. I have my oldest granddaughter is about to turn 17. So, yeah, I will talk about that. I mean, obviously, the dynamics are much different. I had to come out to my mom, who is 98, and that was hard in all of the typical ways of a child coming out to a parent. But for my children, there were so many other factors involved. Mm. For most of them, I had been their seminary teacher. Probably they had perceived of me as super orthodox and very, you know, probably strict. And so this challenged so much of what they saw about me. And it was really important in those first conversations that I was clear, and I tried to do this, but I, I don't know how well I succeeded. Their perception, anyone they had known, and they were all adults when I came out, 
probably between about 25 and 35. What they had seen when their friends had come out was that they left their families and they left the church. That was the only model they'd seen. So That so was their he, assumption. Exactly. So hearing this from me, that was where they went, that I was going to get divorced from dad <laughs> and, uh, and leave the church. And so that fear, I think, overrode almost anything else I tried to say or tried to explain in those early conversations. And I just had to be really conscious about how I addressed that. And really, I think it just took years of seeing, you know, well, that doesn't seem to be what's happening. Mm. And helping them understand, too, that my fidelity to, to my faith, to my covenants, was what they saw on the outside was my efforts to stay, stay where I wanted to be, to keep my behavior consistent with my values. And so this, you know, really faithful mom— who they just found out now is gay, you know, attracted to women, that that was still, I mean, what they saw in me before grew out of this. So it wasn't a facade. No, no. I think of all of the things that are true about me, the most true is that I want to be a disciple of Christ. That is the organizing principle of my life. That's the thing I always come back to. And so that was the most true thing about me that anyone ever saw. And that didn't change. I've been Relief Society president a couple of times. You know, I was gay during that. (laughs) Everything I did also was alongside of this. But my choices about how I lived my life were the determining factor, not my circumstances. You make a good point that lots of us have had already LGBTQ Sunday school teachers, elders, quorum presidents, Relief Society, church leaders. Every ward, yeah. But somehow there is sort of an us and them Mm -hmm. when talking about the queer community or LGBTQ community. But it would be helpful, I think, in any congregation to just assume that there are people in any class, in any congregation, and that there's only us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is absolutely true. I was surprised when I became a little bit more open about this at the women who quietly came to me and talked about their own experience. I was shocked. I didn't know. I didn't have any gaydar that told me, you know, who, who everyone was in the ward that was LGBTQ. We are absolutely safe in assuming every Relief Society, every quorum, every, every congregation has people who are quietly, because, because we, we all do this in our own way, right? And so there are a lot of people, especially women, who don't feel a need to tell anyone that they're bisexual or that they're lesbian or that they're here. This is where they want to be. They're in the congregation. They're living a covenant life as they understand that. And they don't feel a need to talk about it. But I will say that when I was invited to do so, and I did, I felt like I could breathe freely for the first time in my life. So we talked about a faith journey. So a snapshot of where you are now compared to when this first started to weigh on you and you realize it in your relationship with God. Mm -hmm. I have come to understand that what is really important to my 
faith is a correct understanding of who God is. And so in my scriptures, I have a special marking for anything that talks about the nature of God or reveals the nature of God. I think I have, over these years, realized that my expectations of what he would want or what I should do to please him were so narrow and that his ways really are higher than than my ways and his thoughts than my thoughts. And so I think my understanding of his creativity, of his definitely, of his, of his loving kindness, of his patience has expanded because I, I believed that he was displeased with me or that he would be displeased with me if we ever talked about this part of, you know, of my life, which I denied for 40 years. And, uh, which logically – he would already know. Oh, yeah. So why yeah. why is this a You know, it's like a little kid who doesn't look at you so you won't see him, you know? <laughs> they're they're taking an extra piece of candy, they don't look at you and you won't see that. I think that's the same thing I was doing. We just won't talk about this. We'll talk about all these other things I need some guidance with, but not this one. But I think my understanding of his love and acceptance of me as I am has enabled me to have more faith in him as he is, as I've come to understand more about who he is. And I think also the shift in my feeling about myself from broken to wounded allows me to consistently turn to the healer and to recognize that this isn't the final exam. This moment in time is not the final exam. And I always felt like I had to get it right the first time And I realized that he's a lot more relaxed about me making mistakes than I ever was. And he's provided a way for me to be able to not be condemned by those mistakes and that that is the plan. And so I just feel a greater sense of a very patient, tender, encouraging God who is asking me to be a little easier on myself and to just let him just trust him. Just trust him. Trust him that if I make a mistake, he's going to help me with it. He'll help me to find a different way, another way, a little better way. And each time I do that, I'm going to understand more. And that he is more invested in my growth than in my ability to be a obedient servant. He, he's growing me into something better than a servant who can meet all the obligations. He's wanting me to have the understanding that he has and that, that involves a lot of unexpected directions that I didn't think he would, he would be okay with. So. so the title, Tender Leaves of Hope. You are not in a place, it sounds like, where you have all the answers to all the questions you would like answers to, but you have arrived at a place of trust. Yes. And so Tender Leaves of Hope, why that title? I think it captures... That hope is not completely, you know, this is not fall hope. This is not summer hope. This is early spring where those (laughs) leaves are just budding out Hmm. and just beginning to have the promise of what they'll become. I also, it's a quote from Shakespeare, but I think it does capture this. We're at the beginning and there is so much more growth ahead. There is so much more confidence in hope ahead. But right now, having a bit is enough. The women that I interviewed for the book consistently talked about feeling more direction from God in this area of their life than any other, and consistently talked about 
feeling the power of God's love for them and his acceptance for them. And they don't have all the answers. None of us have all the answers. And especially in in this plane, there are a lot of unanswered questions. But those tender leaves of hope have a promise of beautiful, amazing, creative, perfect answers to come. And just a bit of hope is enough for right now. Megan Decker, thank you for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you, Steve. I'm happy to be here. That's our time for today. Thanks to Megan Decker, author of Tender Leaves of Hope, Finding Belonging as LGBTQ Latter-day Saint Women, for generously sharing her stories and her faith. Learn more at Megan's blog at megandecker.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure and spread the word by leaving a five-star comment or review where you get your podcasts. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here in Good Faith.